0: Up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, we have considered who Jesus of Nazareth is, namely Christ the Messiah, and how to become a Christian, namely through faith in Christ and repentance unto God, which always involves forsaking sin. These twin features of conversion, faith, and repentance, they express our regard for who Christ is as both Savior and Lord. If you trust Him as Savior, if you believe He's the Messiah then you must regard Him as Lord and King. If you wish to follow Him then as Master, then you must rest upon Him as your soul's only hope for eternal life. So having answered the first question, who is Jesus? And then the second question, how can I become a follower of Jesus? What does entrance into the kingdom of heaven look like? We move on to a third question. What is the character of of the Christian life. In other words, what does it look like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? As we turn to the opening of chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel here in our text, this evening we will this week begin to consider the most famous portion of Christ's teaching. What Augustine of Hippo and generations of Christians since have called the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 5-7, through Matthew records for us a representative example of Christ's teaching on Christian living as kingdom living. This teaching is primarily intended for Christ's disciples, His followers. Though many others gathered around Him to listen in on this occasion, as we see from our text. Here we read Christ's description of the Christian religion. What it is Christians are to believe and to do christian faith and practice so let's now direct our attention to the text before us the sermon itself is prefaced by the first two verses here of chapter 5 in which christ acknowledges the crowds which have flocked to him and then he ascends to a position on a nearby mountain suitable to address not all the crowds per se but his disciples he then situates himself in this Situation in this scenario as an authoritative instructor seated upon the mountain among his disciples who are eager to learn from him. With the disciples, so too must we this evening ascend the mountain, go up to him, hungry to receive his wisdom, eager to receive his teaching. For he has come to convey important lessons to us regarding the kingdom of heaven. That realm of restored humanity living under the direct rule and reign of God Almighty. The first lesson of the kingdom is expressed in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This statement, so sweet upon the lips and in our minds and our ears, like those which follow it, is structured as a beatitude or statement of blessing. Each beatitude begins with a pronouncement of blessing related to a condition of Christian character. But then it follows with a reason for blessing. We can translate it as, the poor in spirit are blessed because to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. These are not imperatives. They're not commands. It's not saying do this and live. They're not prescriptions for what you should be in order to become a Christian. They don't answer the question, what must I do to be saved? Or even, how shall we then live? Though they rightly draw our minds to those subjects, and we'll touch on that in the sermon, of course. Rather, these statements of blessings... These Beatitudes answer the question, what is the character of the Christian life? The first Beatitude shows us the first characteristic of Christian living, the principal feature of Christian faith and practice in the life of the disciple. Everything else Christ says in the whole sermon, and even in the rest of the Beatitudes, flows out of this statement. It is so important to get this right. And what he teaches us by this beautiful statement of blessing is that God blesses only the poor in spirit with eternal life in Christ. God blesses only the poor in spirit with eternal life in Christ. We'll consider this under two headings according to the two parts of the Beatitude. First, the character of spiritual poverty. And then secondly, the blessing of eternal life. In Christ so first the character of spiritual poverty we first need to define what it means to say the poor in spirit who are the poor in spirit well to be poor in spirit is to be humble in heart before God knowing he owes you nothing we saw this in Nehemiah chapter 9 the people having been chastened under God's discipline know they owe him nothing And they're humble before him even as they confess their sins and seek for his aid. This is expressed perhaps nowhere better than in Psalm 51, verses 1 to 3, when David, having been caught in his sin with Bathsheba, says to God, he confesses to God and pleads with him, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever, always before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Are those the words of a man who thinks he has something on God? Are these the words of a humbled man before God, knowing that God owes him nothing? And he's seeking for grace. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge your spiritual poverty. You are a beggar for grace. So, what is it not? We must distinguish. This is not a natural disadvantage that you're born with, this is not material poverty, an empty bank account or wallet or something. This isn't a personality type. It's not the meek and mild introvert. This isn't some kind of temperament of natural gentleness. So when Christ addresses His people and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, He's not talking about the socially underprivileged. He's not talking about the materially poor or the physically weak. Though this and the previous um, issue here of social privilege should encourage spiritual humility, shouldn't it? But sometimes the poor... And those who are underprivileged, as we see in our culture today, and perhaps even in our own personal lives, in our own past, are bitter. Their poverty leads to bitterness and envy, which is actually the opposite of being poor in spirit. It's a form of manifestation of pride. Again, the poor in spirit are not those who are by natural temperament mild-mannered, polite, or humble, or... Reserved, apart from the grace of God, you can be all of those things and have no interest in God at all and think you're completely fine apart from Him. It's not, and this is especially important today in our culture of superficiality, it's not the apparently humble person, the person who is self-deprecating, always saying, oh, but you know, I'm not that big of a deal, I didn't do this or that. That's not what Christ is going on about here. Because that person, along with the temperamentally mild-mannered person, as I've already said, may be humble in the sight of man, but have a wicked and proud heart. Even putting on airs in order to get some kind of advantage from those around them. The con man, is, uh, or confidence man, is a perfect example of this. Playing the part of one kind of person in order to win your trust, only to turn on you. And to abuse you and to mine from you some advantage to himself. These people, they get along fine without God in their minds. But God sees past to that facade of humility to the proud heart within. Unlike us, God does not look on the outward appearance. He does not see as a man sees. But he looks at the heart. That is what Christ is referring to here when he speaks of the poor in spirit. So let's consider a few examples of what the poor in Spirit is what who they are. The character of the poor in spirit is the character of supernatural humility before God. It's, it's wrought by His discipline taking root in a believer's life. The poor in spirit knows what it means to be afflicted in this life and thus to cry out to God. For salvation and relief when met with God's restraints then have you yielded to him or have you resisted him like a wild animal caught on a chain that's the image john calvin gives in drawing this contrast it's a great image consider what true humility looks like one who is tamed by god we start with david after god pronounces his covenant promises to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18, David says not, Finally, I get what I deserve after all this dealing with Saul. Finally, God gives me what I deserve from him. No! He says, Who am I, O Lord God? Who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? The poor in spirit. Moses. In Exodus chapter 4, from a strong sense of his own weakness and inability and inadequacy, he instinctively recoils from God's call to lead the people out of Egypt. Now, Moses slips into sin in doing that, and we're told that God's anger is kindled against him. But yet, that instinct of saying, I can't, no, I can't do that. Me? No, I'm not worthy to do that. That is the heart of one who is poor in spirit. Gideon had the same response. In Judges 6, 14, he responds to God's call. He says, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel from the Midianites? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. He immediately goes to his own weakness, his own need. We move on to the prophets. Isaiah when he beheld a vision of the thrice-holy God, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, Woe is me. He sensed his own, his own defilement and filth, his own distance and separation from the Holy Creator, and he cries out, To him in desperation. This is one who is poor in spirit. Jeremiah, in the very first chapter of his prophecy, when he's called to be a prophet, what does he say? Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. What is Jeremiah asking for there? He's asking for the Lord to give him what he needs because he knows he doesn't have it on his own. We can flip over into the New Testament then. Peter, bold, brash. Apostle of God, upon which, uh, upon this rock I shall build my church. When Christ directs him to a miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter 5, what does he do? He falls out of the boat. I imagine him splashing in the water, running up to Jesus, and falls at his feet and says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. We think of Peter as bold and brash. And headstrong, and yet here we see he is poor in spirit. And then we go to Paul, Philippians 3, 7-11, to what he writes to this church of Philippi. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He says, anything that I had in my previous life, I cast aside any talents, any knowledge, any skill, for I seek for that which comes from God himself. This is another example of the poor in spirit. But the best example of all is our Lord Himself. Though Christ Jesus is very God of very God, sharing entirely and perfectly in the divine nature, equal to the Father in every respect imaginable, eternally begotten and uncreated, not made, yet He voluntarily submitted Himself to the form and likeness of sinful flesh. He took to himself a human nature in body and soul, and confessing utter dependence upon the Father in his earthly ministry. He says in John 14:10, "The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works." This is the God-man speaking in utter dependence on his Father in heaven, the poor in spirit. Consider how he prayed in his life. Can anyone number the hours he spent in private prayer? In this, we see the Lord's own supernatural poverty of spirit, his reliance upon God the Father. He learned obedience, we're told. And he knew what it was to be in need of divine assistance. He was poor in spirit. And so do you come to God with your accomplishments, with your money, your family name, perhaps, your reputation, your good deeds done for your fellow men, your vigorous exercises of religious devotion, expecting to receive favor from him because of these things? Or do you come to him daily with the humility expressed in that psalm which we sang right before the reading of the word? O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty or boastful or arrogant. What is your posture before God? Are you poor in spirit? Examine your heart on this point. Does the thought ever creep into your mind? That he owes you something. Christian, he owes you nothing. This is the foundational characteristic of the Christian life. To behold your spiritual poverty before our holy and infinite God. To nurture a deep sense of your personal inability to do anything of worth for God and his glory apart from his provision of grace. And this is the opposite of the whole I deserve better mentality extant in our culture, in our boastful age. I deserve better. I need to take care of myself. My friends, you are spiritually needy. And all your circumstances, be they for good or ill, testify in harmony with God's word that you are a poor beggar before God with nothing but an outstretched open hand before him God owes you nothing but here's the second half of the the truth here he offers you everything he owes you nothing but he offers you everything he offers you everything in Christ Jesus who speaks these words to us what do I mean by that well that brings us to our second point we've considered spiritual poverty what it it means to be poor in spirit we now move forward to God's saving grace the blessing of eternal life In Christ and we'll consider both the blessedness of Christ himself and the blessing of eternal life first the blessedness of Christ this blessedness of eternal life the blessing that that we proclaim to our neighbors and seek to present before them and offer to them it's expressed in our beatitude as the kingdom of heaven but this blessedness is identical with the king of that kingdom Christ is the blessing. Christ, the king himself, is the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven. His person is what makes eternal life blessed to the believer. So who is this king? As Matthew has taught us in the opening chapters of his gospel, this king is the promised Messiah of the Jews. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham, the embodied fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. His name is Jesus... For He came to save His people from their sins. He is called Emmanuel, which translates into God with us. He's fully God and fully man. He came preaching the gospel or good news of the kingdom. And He suffered in our place, dying the death of a vile sinner, though He Himself was perfectly holy and righteous and obedient to His last breath, that we might have eternal life. By his spirit working through his church, he urges today all who hear his voice through the preached word to enter his kingdom through faith in him and repentance from sin and death to holiness and life. This is the king of the kingdom. And what is he like? We know what he does. We know who he is. But there's more to be said. This king is altogether lovely. He's the only perfect man. He's without any sin or moral blemish. The psalmist praises him in Psalm 45. He says, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. And he shares this blessing with his people. As Ephesians tells us, For He is the King of mercy and grace. He's the King of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's the King of abundant life. Indeed, He testifies of Himself in John's Gospel. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. He's the King of a spiritual kingdom. And the blessedness of this kingdom is a spiritual blessedness that He pours out upon us. This this blessedness, it, it sweetens our temporary and fleeting joys of this life, but also makes bearable and even fruitful those grinding frustrations, those pains and wearisome toils, relationship difficulties and disappointments that we encounter in our earthly pilgrimage. To the poor in spirit, the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than the world's choicest diamonds and pearls, more alluring than the wild fame of elite society, more urgently needed than even food or drink when you're hungry or you're thirsty, more mentally satisfying than the most sophisticated academic pursuits and philosophical discourses, more impressive than the most astounding feats of physical abilities or sportsmanship. And yet, this blessedness is not complicated. It's very simple. It is himself. The king is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And just as we cherish and prize our loved ones and our families and our circles of friends in this congregation, so too do we possess the Lord Jesus. And this is what it means then when he says Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They possess something. What do they possess? Jesus Christ himself. This is the blessing of eternal life that we hold out to our neighbors. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the king of heaven. What does it mean to possess the kingdom? To lay claim to its king as our own. To be recipients of his infinite blessedness. To inherit eternal life. Simply put. In the very first place, it means to enjoy spiritual union and communion with God through Christ. Ephesians chapter one has the most uh, the most straightforward, or I should say, detailed explanation of this, starting at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to His purpose. Who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Notice how many times the phrase, in Christ, in the Beloved, in Him occur in this text. This is the foundation. This is the touchstone of Christian salvation and blessedness. In union with Christ, we are born again to a living hope made into new creations as a restored humanity for the glory of God. We have been called to render to Him praise in Christ. In the second place, and logically following our union with Christ, are those four great features of our salvation. We don't have time to get into them in much detail, but they're worth highlighting here. First, our justification, which is the crediting of Christ's righteousness to our records and names before the judgment seat of God the Father. So that when He looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. And then adoption. That is our engrafting uh, into the family of God, granting us access to the Father. To God as Father. Then our sanctification. Which is our being set apart. Unto God in this life. For all eternity as his chosen vessels. But also expressed in our life. Through a progressive day by day. Increase in godliness. Incremental victory over sin. Though never complete in this life. Yet always growing. Always advancing. And then glorification that promised resurrection body being united to a perfected soul, perfected in holiness, free of illness, free of injury, free of lustful appetites, free of pain, free of any regrets. In the third place, the blessing of eternal life, it's experienced then in our lives today as peace, as rest, as soul satisfaction, in the Lord Jesus. This morning, uh, Dr. Pippa declared pardon from Romans chapter 5. And that passage puts it this way, this peace, this rest which we experience, puts it this way in connection to justification in particular. Romans 5 reads, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, presently stand, and we presently exult in hope of the glory of God. This is the experience of those who being poor in spirit and looking to God for salvation have received possession of the kingdom of heaven. Earlier I mentioned that to be poor in spirit is to be a beggar of grace. Indeed, we would do well to characterize Christianity, as Machen did, as the religion of the broken heart. But that is just the prelude to the great promise of the gospel, to those who are utterly unable to help themselves, and by God's awakening and revelatory grace, no such to be the case. To those for whom God has revealed this reality. That you have nothing to bring to him. That he owes you nothing. God offers then grace sufficient to address all your needs. All your wounds. All your sinfulness. All your broken heartedness. Imagine if you will. You're walking in downtown Greenville. And there's a beggar there. And he says, can you help me out? And you say, well, if you give me a dollar, I'll give you $10,000 to get you off the street. And he says, what kind of offer is that? You know, I don't have anything. But then you put the dollar in his hand. It's a familiar illustration, one I've heard several times. But it's a good one, and I couldn't come up with a better one. But that's the transaction at play here. We come to God, we say we have nothing. And he puts all that we need into our hands. His all-sufficient grace is for you. His Christ is for you. If you're sitting here this evening and you're in spiritual need, children, I want you to listen up. If you're sitting here this evening, young men and women, and you're in spiritual need, you know you have sin and you don't know how to deal with it. If you haven't found rest in Jesus Christ, then tonight, Call out to the God of all comfort and grace and ask Him to grant you His everlasting prize. Ask Him to give to you the Lord Jesus Christ to know Him, to know His peace, to know reconciliation with God the Father through Him, to rest in Him. Will you lay claim to Him then? You must before it's too late. You're very young, all of you. But none of us know the time of our death. And we know even less of the day and the hour of his return to judge the living and the dead. He may very well do so while you're young. So today, may today be the day of salvation. When you call upon Christ in faith. And you say to God, God, take away my sins. I don't know what to do with them, but you do. Give me Christ. Now, for those of you who already lay claim to the name of Christ, who are enrolled in the register of this church or some other Bible-believing church, who attend weekly worship and prayer meeting, who commit to daily devotions, I want to remind you that this teaching, our text this evening, it's first and foremost addressed to you as Christ's disciples. This is for you as those who have already received the Lord Jesus as Savior. What does this text tell us disciples of the character of the Christian life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs not to the proud, the entitled, the self-sufficient, the arrogant, or the progressive ideologue with all his confidence in the advancing greatness of man. No, God blesses only the poor, and dare I say desperate in spirit with eternal life. In Christ. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the humble. The self-consciously dependent. The spiritually broken hearted. To beggars of grace. This applies to you Christian. The Holy Spirit is working in each of you. To conform you ever more to the likeness of Christ our Lord. In your sanctification. And as he does so. You do not grow less dependent on God. Or his mercies. You do not grow more and more self-sufficient. No. In your sanctification, you grow ever more humble, ever more contrite of heart, ever more poor in spirit and lowly. Your spiritual poverty and your bankruptcy, they become more and more pronounced, even as your virtue becomes more and more evident in your thoughts in your speech, and in your behavior. Yes, you can rejoice in your advances in godliness, but don't let those advances be the cause of your arrogance and growing puffed up with yourself or self-sufficient. The chief characteristic of the Christian is an ever-deepening humility. Now, this may be paired with boldness in evangelism. I hope it is. It may be paired with vigor in spiritual disciplines. It should be. It must be. And the humility of Christ was always united to courage in the face of opposition, confidence in God, and vigorous exertion in the cause of the kingdom in his own life. And surely, as his disciples, we follow after him in that pattern. But be on your guard, Christian, against that lie of Satan, which is ever in our ears, which at some point, God begins to owe you something. Such is never the case. No matter how fruitful or faithful you have been, we are ever debtors to grace and beggars of grace. We have nothing, nothing with which to buy his favor. We have nothing with which to repay the debt we owe to him. But, he says, blessed are the poor spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the king. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cacheville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.